0: So, you're waiting in line, complaining on social media, or talking to friends about something that just doesn't work for you. How often do we think, if only the designers had thought of this or that, there's often some really easy fix that we all know would make something much, much better than it is already. I'm Manisha Amin. Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Camaragel people, the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast today, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and of course emerging. We're so excited to have you all here today with us. So often things are designed for us, but here we explore the magic that happens when we design with people, not just for them. There's no question the acceptance and inclusion of people who identify as LGBTQ plus has changed dramatically in the Western world over the last 50 years. In fact, it's difficult to remember how much things have changed. To take us through their individual journeys and experiences, we have two very special guests with us here today on With Not For, Steph Sands and Mon Shafter. Over the past 15 years, Steph Sands has worked with a broad range of LGBTQ plus community organisations and is also the founder of Women Say Something. Steph is also currently the Australian Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Capgemini, a global technology consulting company. She has a lot on her hands. Mon Shafter is an award-winning ABC journalist and documentary maker. Mon actually leads the content for ABC Queer, the home of stories and advice for queer young people, and she's also the Executive Director of 2010, a not-for-profit supporting young LGBTQ plus people in New South Wales. Today we'll be speaking to Steph and Mon about the impact that workplaces and the media can have on including people intentionally. So let's just start with you, Steph. Can you tell us a little bit about your earlier work experience?
1: Yeah, well, um, it's a long story. It's, <laughs> we, we, I don't think we've got all day to have it. But I I, I grew up in a small country regional town and um, it was still illegal you know, to be gay when I was a kid. And it certainly was a message that was, you know, relayed to you when you're growing up that it wasn't normal. And it wasn't, you know, something right. that would be a, a happy life. It's uh, crazy
0: that it was actually still illegal then as well, mm, Steph. Mm. Well,
1: 1994 was the last year um, that the Tasmania Rights Lobby actually secured the uh, having that removed out of uh, out of the law. But it's, it's funny, you know, because lesbianism was never actually illegal. It was just sodomy. It was just the gay men that, that actually right. had that. You know, and it was deportation and execution up to the end of uh, the 19th century and then um, it was life. We actually got um, sent to Australia, to the colonies for, for sodomy. So uh, that was interesting. But, yeah, look, I, I grew up, you know, and you know, I, my father was British and was very stoic and my mother was a fifth-generation farmer and it was a town of 5,000 people then. So, you know, I didn't even know what a lesbian was until I really went to uni and, and and turned 20 or 21 and came out in my early 20s in another regional town called Wagga Wagga um, where there was, I met two other lesbians and thought I'd better move to Sydney. So um, I moved to Sydney, but it was funny. My first job was in Wagga. It was a senior high school um, teaching, so I taught for a year and I got asked to teach religion one day and um, I was being asked to teach abstinence. And, of course, I couldn't teach abstinence because I was a kid myself. I was 21 and the kids were 16 or 17 and, and um, I was sort of coming out at that time too, so I was dressing in a, in a way that was probably not um, befitting of a feminine teacher, uh, and I think you know the uh, the sisters and the brothers knew that I wasn't uh, mainstream straight. And um, when I when I couldn't teach abstinence, um, I, my contract wasn't renewed. So that was a bit of a lesson for me that, that that don't ask, don't tell sort of, and it was still illegal at that stage in in Tasmania. So it, it was a bit hard coming out and sort of knowing how to be in the world, I think. When my, you know, I'd spent four years at uni learning how to teach and then not being able to teach because I was coming out was 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 hard. And I found myself and, and you know, by the grace of people you meet along the way, one of my students' father's was the bank manager. And he gave me a job on the floor in the bank. And right. from there I I moved to Sydney with the bank and joined the IT department as a secretary of all things. I am nowhere near anyway organized enough to be secretary <laughs> but the the uh, woman that i worked with michelle she um she's still a friend to this day um and we we I certainly like collaboration there but but from the bank i went into into the advertising industry
0: and was that easier obviously the um schooling system was not yeah. but it sounds like you had to pick your jobs based on where you'd be included in a way
1: yeah look in a way i mean i i i've I probably It was probably more being in the right place at the right time and more good luck than good management. But I fell into careers in industries where I was um, accepted from that point onwards. Right. Uh, and maybe I did look for that. Maybe I did look for places that accepted me um, subconsciously. But, but advertising was an interesting one because I could be one of the boys without being gay. So even though I was with women, right. um, I was seen as one of the boys who dated women. Does that
0: make sense? Kind of. So Mon how knows did what that, I'm saying. Yes, I can see Mon's <laughs> actually smiling and laughing as you're talking there. So uh, Mon, how does that mm-hmm. relate to your experiences?
2: I mean, I think I've been pretty fortunate with my whole coming out experience and being out at work. I didn't realise I was queer until like the year out of uni. So I think on the lead up to that, it was probably just really suppressed. And there was probably some internalized homophobia going on, lack of diverse visibility of, you know, queer representation in the media, a lot of those factors. But in my first job outside of uni, there was this really hot, cool English producer who was a lesbian. And for the first time, I felt like my heart kick in and this animal instinct kick in. And it was like, whoa okay, that's what attraction is about. That's what love is about. And that just sort of shook me and and woke me up and then it was like, okay, I'm gay, I understand. So I think I, again, I've been pretty fortunate and that was like around 2002, 2003. Um, and in the creative roles that I've had in the media, working in TV and using current affairs and stuff like that, I've sort of always been drawn to telling the stories of people from marginalized communities and, and outsiders, and even though I personally, you know, haven't faced the challenges that other people have had to face, I kind of still feel some kind of empathy to people that have, you know, had to just deal with the fact that you, you're, you're a bit different or you're not part of the mainstream. And that's, yeah, it given me an empathy, I think, to be able to tell those stories uh, comprehensively
0: and, and it's respectfully. A, it's a really interesting one because I think um, what comes up for me is this idea that you can't be what you don't see. And so... Mm telling those stories then becomes even doubly more important. Do you think it matters who's on the other end of the camera or on the other end of the um, recruitment process, if you like, and and the representation of the person who is telling that story with the person who's, I guess, the talent?
2: For sure, yeah. I think representation is so important, whether it's audience-facing or behind the scenes, just to tell stories accurately and, and authentically I mean I think we're seeing this conversation play out you know across film and, and television with you know casting transgender people to play transgender roles or you know if we, you're going to tell a trans story a transgender writer you know should tell that story uh, because people deserve you know the opportunity to tell their own stories in their own voice and I think for too long, others have told those stories on behalf of people from yeah. particular communities and, and those people have been denied the opportunity to tell their own stories. So I think that's really important and I'm sure Steph would feel the same way in, in your workplace in, in terms of having proper representation.
1: Absolutely. I think, um, it, yeah, employee resource groups in in workplaces are really interesting because you actually give people the opportunity to be who they are um, and actually be able to talk about the challenges that they face. And I think it's sort of similar, right? I mean, we, we need that media representation because I know growing up, I didn't have visibility to anyone. I couldn't see. I didn't know because I couldn't see. And I do remember, you know, a picture in Dolly magazine. It's probably, um, did they have Dolly when you were growing up, Mon? Yeah, I remember. Dolly. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Dolly
1: and Doctor. there was, I remember. Yeah, Dolly Doctor, and I remember two women on a rock modelling swimsuits, and I think they might have been touching each other, like you know, just having their arms around it or something. And I said, "Oh wow, that's different," you know. <laughs> um, and that was visibility for me, and I, I think I kept that photo for that, that ripped out page of the magazine for many, many years. And mm-hmm. um, and that was, it. and then Desert Hearts came out in the late 1980s, so maybe 1989 or something. And that was the first movie ever that I saw with, right. with lesbian characters in it. And now you don't, and, and now it's, you know, it's everywhere. There's this mainstreaming of those, our sort of relationships and our stories that that really helps. It really helps in the workplace. It helps in the family structures. It helps, you know, in social structures. And it's, it's been a great journey in that way, but it's so important. It's so important still. And then
0: how does representation work when we think about I mean, when I think about those letters, so LGBTQ and then potentially I, A and plus, there are a lot of letters there that represent a lot of different people. And not all those people have the same journey. Not all of those groups have the same number of people either in terms of um, representation. So how do you make sure then if we're having people tell their own story How does that play out, for instance, in the workplace when you might not have all of those letters in your workplace? You might not have all of the people who are represented by those letters in your workplace. Or even in the media, we might not have the journalists who want to actually be out, I guess, in that way when they're telling those stories. How do we deal with that side of things?
2: Mm. I mean, you're right, the the queer community is made up of many, many, like, sub-communities within that. So, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, asexual, plus all the other, you know, sexuality and gender non-conforming people that don't necessarily fit those particular letters either. And we're a very diverse community and, you know, we don't always see eye to eye. We, we, We sometimes have different political beliefs. We face different challenges. And it's so important that the diversity is acknowledged um, when we're talking about queer representation because, you know, just because you've got one gay bloke on your board, they don't necessarily speak for the diverse experiences of the whole queer community. So I think it's important to, uh, you know, strive to have diverse representation in terms of sexuality and gender, cultural background, all sorts of experiences to ensure that you are, you know, re- reflecting the, the best interests and the, the wants and needs of of all people. I think when talking uh, about the, you know, the LGBTQ community as well often we sort of refer to it as a whole but sometimes we actually are only specifically talking about one of those letters or one of those groups like it might be a conversation about lesbians or it might be a conversation about intersex people and in that case it's best to use the specific language for the community that you're talking about and to not generalize unless you are talking about the broader community so there's a lot of those things to to think about too.
0: I think there's two sides to this story. One side is for those people who are happy and um, comfortable and safe enough to be out. And then for other people, their sexuality or their gender is a really private thing. And so especially in the workplace where organizations are really striving to do the right thing and want to include people, but sometimes those people don't necessarily want to have to be out to be included. How do you deal with that? Steph? Uh,
1: It's a good question. Nobody is forcing anyone to come out in the workplace. Mm. Um, And what what my – and look, we're just starting to get hard data now at work, which shows that a lot of people choose not to be out uh, in the workplace. Um, For us, we are finding that it's a cultural reason because we have a lot of uh, people that come over from, from India, which is where our offshoring facilities are. Um, and from other different parts of the world, Uh, we have, we have, and we have offices in 42 countries. So you can imagine the range of countries that range from death penalty for LGBT people through to um, being in Australia and, and, and the UK and being quite progressive. So we have a range of, of people's attitudes to have to deal with. But what we have found is, it helps those that are the visibility of the people who do come out and the programs and initiatives that we run helps people come to terms sometimes with who they are and ha- helps provide that safe space for people to explore who they are, not necessarily asking them to come out. Now, I know where you're going to go. Misha, you're going to say, how can we actually then use those diverse experiences and that, that lived experience to contribute to inclusive designs in the products and services that we deliver? Okay, I know, I know that's where we're heading. But we think that, I think that if people are relaxed and safe enough to be who they are, and to be who they are doesn't necessarily mean having to come out. You can, you know, be who you are without having to come out in the workplace. You can just, all you need to do is feel safe there. Right. And safe to express the opinions that you feel in doing your job. So really, we just try to make sure that we've got a safe space, that people feel they belong, that they can come out if they want to come out, and they're not going to be judged for that but they are free to actually have differing opinions and diverse thought than anybody else in, in the company because that's where innovation lives when right. you start challenging thought. And you can't have challenging thought and diverse thought without people feeling safe to have that.
0: So can you talk a little bit about your own experiences there because I, I remember you talking about your current company and how you didn't feel safe and then you did mm. and and your journey through through the organisation I mean, I think it's one of those case studies that um, listeners would probably be very interested in.
1: So I went from teaching geography and social sciences to being a bank teller working in IT to advertising, uh, the digital side of advertising. Um, When we were working with Internet Explorer version one and Netscape version one um, and building the web banners to ending up in an IT consulting company. Now, from an advertising agency to an IT consulting company, that was a bit of a culture shock for me. I it bet. was very different. It was very different. So I joined Capgemini in 2010 as a contractor for a, um, for a, for a program management role uh, working on a SAP infrastructure refresh. So just those words made me want to turn over and run away, but I did it because I wanted a different experience. Um, and what I found was I didn't fit in there. I did not fit in. I mean, people didn't think like me. They didn't look like me. I couldn't see any role models like me. Mm-hmm. I went into the actual office twice and walked around the floor three times, couldn't find anyone that will actually talk to me, um, got looked up and down because I walked in in my jeans and my little vest and shirt. Nobody, you know, was wearing anything like that. They were in their, in their suits and very were conservative clothing. Um, so I spent three and a half years on contract On client site basically running women say something in the background because then I could start at nine finish at five I didn't feel like I belonged in that in that in that environment so I left so my contract finished and I left and then a friend of mine a gay man was working back at Capgemini and said to me I really need a good program manager to work on a, a client in Canberra so I went and did that role. I worked with a different bunch of people, a very diverse um, group of people who came from lots of different places around the world. Um, I was working in a government client, so it was mm-hmm. already a different environment there. Uh, and so I thought, well, this is a bit different. So I went out and signed up for another client, and this was 2016, and we, and we just stood up out front in a very very small. Out front is our um, LGBT ERG. I found three or four other people in the company by that stage. And we decided that we were going to try and get Capgemini to publicly support marriage equality. So we were going through the plebiscite. Little did I know that the country board, the Capgemini country board had already been asked to vote on this matter 12 months previously and had voted against publicly coming out and support. So, at that stage, Olaf Petzner, who is now the CEO of our APAC our strategic business unit, he, he was the um, the COO for Australia and New Zealand at that stage. And I wrote to Olaf, and I wrote to our then CEO, and I just said, I didn't feel I belonged in this company. I feel like this is the company is starting to change, but I also think that if I can't be my authentic self in Cap Gemini, I don't want to be at Cap Gemini. It's pretty brave words sorry
0: that's that's let's just stop there for a sec that's really brave right
1: uh I I think I was older I knew then by then that I actually wanted to be in a culture if I was going to work hard and I was working hard I wanted to be in a culture that actually supported who I was right um and not supported in the sense of you know having to go to pride parades and you know sponsor sponsor events and stuff but just treated me like you know, for my authenticity and actually respected my opinion. Right. So and I knew there were other companies because they were signing on to support marriage equality. I knew other companies actually supported authenticity and people being having different um, life experiences. So I ran and Olive said yes. He came back automatically and he just said yes straight away. This is a no-brainer for me. Of course I'll bring I'll take it up to Country Board. Country Board voted again and I think Olaf was new to that vote and I think his vote tipped it in favour. So that year, that, and that was the year that we came out and we publicly supported. And then from 2018 on, we really started working on how can we, you know, really set the tone for inclusion in the company using LGBTQ awareness and authenticity to actually help drive our overall DNI agenda, which is then what we did over the next three years. Um, and now I can't think of being anywhere else because right. the culture is so different and the people in it some of which are the same people that were there 10 years ago, I'm seeing, you know, they're growing. They understand more and it's about awareness. And and just going back to that previous conversation we are having around visibility and you can't be what you can't see. Our Allies can't be what they can't see either. So allies in the workplace, they didn't know what being a good ally was. No one had ever shown them or told them or told them why it was so important um and then moving into where this whole movement is going now this dnai movement is going now and it's going into that quadrant of work product and services you know having those authentic thoughts uh, those authentic people being able to deliver divergent thought is actually building better solutions for our clients
0: right and do you think that you know, the marriage equality conversation was a really interesting one. And all of a sudden it felt like corporate Australia owned the rainbow flag. You know, and there were rainbows everywhere. And it's interesting when you talk about the difference between, um, saying you're pro something and doing something as an organization. How do you feel organizations have really helped to shape the way that individuals think about this community, and and what are the next couple of steps?
1: I'm really interested to hear Mon's view on this, but I do think that... Well, I'm going to Mon um, on this, don't you worry. <laughs> I do think that um, marriage equality here in Australia tipped the balance um, for corporates and how corporates actually started to play a role in in social purpose. And we're seeing the fruits of that. But at the same time, we're also seeing a... a Wave within our community, um, saying they don't want corporates in our, in our playground. And right. I think we need to find the balance there because corporates have provided a lot of freedoms for us and they actually are in some ways playing the role of the government and what the government should be doing around social progression. Mm. And that's okay because corporates have got the money to be able to do it and probably doing it better. But we need to somehow balance that with what some, some areas of our community feel is pinkwashing. Right. So we need to be careful.
0: And then, Mona, in terms of that then, I'd love your feedback and your thoughts on what Steph has just said. I'd also like your feedback on the role of media and I guess the difference in how the media story is playing out now next to, say, five years or 20 years ago.
2: Sure. I mean, in terms of the corporate world backing or advocating for, for queer causes, it is such a delicate dance as Steph has pointed out, on one hand, you know, they have money to fund initiatives, to fund Mardi Gras, to donate to organisations that that support queer young people. So a lot of of positives can come from that. Also, the the reach of corporates, whether that's through their advertising and, and media opportunities, or just their visibility in society, reaches mainstream Australia, who also needs to receive these messages, because often, you know, our queer community can exist in a bit of a bubble where we're speaking to each other and preaching to the converted. So mainstream representation, I feel, needs to be part of that and and corporates can contribute to that. But often it can become uh, tokenistic, you know, if it is just putting some rainbow colours on your logo at at one time in the year or connected to marriage equality. So I think it's important that, um, you know, they really walk the talk and, and there's a lot of great work being done by pride groups within different organizations including corporate organizations where you know queer staff are, are sort of leading the way and and strategizing about how their organization can contribute to lgbtqia plus diversity and inclusion um in the workplace so i think there needs to be a lot of follow-through and, yeah, and not just sort of tokenistic efforts but in terms of the the media like i mean i've seen a, a lot of change just through being at the abc like i've been Telling stories at the ABC for over ten years now, and you know it started way back on a show called Hungry Beast that was this weird sort of comedy current affair show that was produced by Andrew Denton, who was awesome enough to really give us no rules aside from not being boring. So we had sort of free free reign, and we told lots of you know, well not lots, but we, we told a few queer stories back then that were really edgy at the time. Like this is two thousand and nine, where we were talking about you know conversion therapy and and how that is and um we were we did a story on on masculine people it was sort of one of the first you know national tv programs to provide a platform for for trans guys way back then and that was really edgy but but these days there's so much more representation like even you know four corners the other day um so not four corners Australian story doing a profile on Michelle Telfer who leads the gender clinic at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne like it's sort of happening at that level and And the the project that I'm working on at the moment at the ABC called ABC Queer, which is a a social media account aimed at young LGBTQIA plus people um, with a lot of diverse stories and diverse content that we've created in collaboration with the community and all of the diversity within the community. Like this is the first time the ABC has had a platform specifically for that community as opposed to content occasionally dropping, you know, here and there. Across our, um, program. So I think the ABC now is really committed to representing diverse Australia and providing something for this audience who, you know, really appreciates it. Just going by the engagement that we've got on the account and the feedback that's coming through.
0: And do you feel like there's a point when the media represents different groups in the sense that is it about that piece about educating? or supporting the allies? Or is it about finding a home for people within the community? And I know it doesn't have to be one or the other. Mm. But it seems to me that the media has a really important role in changing people's minds and influencing people. And, you know, it can do that intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah, yeah. Again, diverse representation is
2: so important. And and one thing that I've tried to do with my storytelling is just provide a platform for people to say what it's like to be them, whoever they are. Because I think a lot of the, the the phobias and bigotry that exists in society is due to a lack of information, a lack of awareness, a lack of understanding. So the way to address that is by educating people and by telling diverse stories. And you know, queer stories are just human stories, right? And they're fascinating stories. And there's lightness and there's shade in all of that. So I think you know it all. All just comes back to representation and, and visibility and getting those stories out there.
0: And I think it's also about having the trust of that community, which is where you really have to work with people, right? Totally. Like when we, um, before
2: ABC Queer was born, um, it started off as a pilot last year within the ABC, but there was a lot of consultation that um, went on with different community groups, and you know we're talking like ACON and 2010 or. Even some of the more you know diverse groups like Sydney queer Muslims and intersex community, like we we reached out to them and just said, look, we're wanting to do this um, you know LGBTQIA plus project, and we want to tell stories. What what stories are missing in the landscape at the moment? What do you want to to see and hear on this platform? Um, you know what would make it work for you? And, and the feedback that we got, like we got a lot of feedback, but people wanted diversity, they wanted intersectional stories, so not just the you know the the typical stuff that you might see in the media, but they wanted to hear from queer indigenous people or queer people with disability. Um, and there was also an appetite for hopeful stories because they'd heard a lot of bad news in the media um, and a, a lot of focus on the challenges that the community is still facing. But they wanted to show uh, yeah hope and and constructive
0: stories and that, that how to sort of navigate through some of these challenges. Right, and so on that note then, I'm going to change topics a little bit. And Steph, if we're thinking about hope and challenges, what is something that you think from a challenge perspective where you go, if that had only been designed with our community involved, the world would be a better place?
1: So many things. You can pick two then. (laughs) Look, you know, the, the one that gets to me is home loans. Let's talk home loans and to talk about queer family structure, because as and, and probably it look I, I won't talk on behalf of younger queers, but for me, um, we had to go through and my generation we had to go through a process of selecting chosen family because a lot of our actual families disowned us when we came out. So let's fast forward a few years and you're trying to get a home loan. It, And if you want a a guarantor, you can't use chosen family. You can only use parents and maybe siblings, right, even though you may have a closer relationship with your family, your chosen family than what you do with your real family. So just the recognition of that there are different family structures and there are different um, relationships that can be used to, to, to be guarantors for home loans and so forth. Everyone's struggling to get a home loan now, so we should be looking at how can we fix those sort of things. Um, and then the other thing that's coming to light now, and, and I mean we're we're still not there, we're, we're a long way away from there, is that the bias in AI and the bias in data.
0: Right.
1: And we use data and we use um, lots of data as a basis of machine learning which then drives AI. But that data that's used is often data sets of, um, of people that don't include us. So, you know, that data could say different things if we were including you know, sets of um, queer people into those, and again, let's look at family structures. You know, we're not two kids, mum and dad. Right, you know, family structures are different. But you know, AI and going back to the first example, home loans. Um, you know, a computer will actually generate the answer of whether your home loan is um, approved or not. And if the data sets or that are used are um, more mainstreaming families or mainstreaming you know, expenses and so forth, the different sort of people to to other. Family. So we need to look at how bias in data and bias in AI are affecting us. But we're early days on this. So that some we've set up some think tanks in my company globally around especially gender bias in data. And there's a great book, Invisible Woman, if anyone wants to look that up, that basically is is um, all about how the world is designed for men. But we're going to see more and more that the world is designed for subsets other than, you know, the, 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 these um, communities that we, we belong in now.
0: And that's a really important point. Um, going back to one of your original points about where can people from an LGBTQ background really impact on work product? Both of those products could actually have been made better if there was diversity in the teams designing them and th- that diversity was heard really as well, right? hmm
1: mm-hmm. uh, And also on the lookout for um, ways in which technology can hurt our community. Right. Say more about that. So... Technology, facial recognition technology is a good one. So if you're living in a country or from a country where it is illegal to be gay or there's strong penalties um, for that and they use facial recognition at pride events in other countries or um, on LinkedIn or Facebook or so forth, that facial recognition software could actually you know, um, associate you with, with things that you don't want to be so or can't be associated with in your home right. country. Trans people being identified in facial recognition, there is there is obvious you know uses for technology where that's not so great just and, and just lots of uh, examples like that where we have to be careful as a community about what some of these great new technologies can actually do can actually harm as well
0: thank you and mon if the world could be designed differently if we worked with people what would that look like what are some of the products or services or things that need to change
2: Oh, geez. Yeah. So many. Um, I mean, I think Steph has made so many interesting points there and the the data thing is really interesting. Um, One of the things we've been looking at at the ABC is diversity tracking as a way to sort of ensure that we do have diverse representation in our content. And um, the people who initially sort of set up the, the categories for this weren't part of the queer community and Fortunately, they came to ABC Pride, which is sort of the the staff queer group, and asked for our input. And it's like, well, okay, you know, (laughs) LGBTQ is not one category, where you can't just tick that box. It's like each one of those, you know, letters represents a different identity. So it's important Mm. that, again, that, you know, people are consulted who can inform these things and, and ensure they're accurate and get the desired outcomes. But I think generally in society, There are so many binary spaces that are problematic, like, you know, barbershops where I can't go and get my $20 dollars shave or whatever because they don't want, you know, women in those spaces, clothing stores, change rooms, all of that kind of stuff. Like, you know, it's it's really not that hard to have gender-neutral options around there. I think, you know, sport is a real challenging one. Like, sport is so binary and Mm. divided into two genders and there needs to be a lot more thought um, and, and community engagement and, uh, from both queer and non-queer people in terms of working out the way forward there. But, like, I'm part of a, a, a queer women's soccer club called the Flying Bats. Apparently, we're the the, the oldest and largest uh, queer women's soccer club in the world. We play in a women's league, but we've got a really inclusive policy, which is basically if you feel that this is the right club for you and you feel safe playing with us, then we'll welcome you. That's lovely. And that's kind of worked out for us and there hasn't been any pushback from the league or other teams. Um, so we have people sort of across the, the gender spectrum other than cis men playing for our club. So so trans people, non, like trans women, non-binary people who feel that this is the right space for them. So yeah, I think busting through that binary is the next big thing we
0: need to look at. Oh, I love that. I think we might call this podcast Busting Through the Binary. That's a lovely name.
1: <laughs> well, even in technology too, we have to bust the binary. How many forms do you see and drop-downs do you see on the internet that has male, female? That's right. You know, And all of the databases and all the systems that run big systems in big companies sometimes are based on binary gender. Even, so true. even one of our superannuations policies life insurance you know life insurance the the cost of life insurance changes for companies based on whether you're male or female that's right they haven't actually they haven't considered if someone is identified as non-binary um the superannuation company will actually make a decision over what gender they will put you in for the purposes of insurance oh
2: wow man this
1: is something that i found out a couple of weeks ago with our superannuation I i won't name and shame but um but we've got them looking at that now. But it actually, yeah, it changes. They don't know what to do. Where do they put the non-binary into their system?
0: And it's an interesting one because it sounds like we've actually complicated the world by generalising the world. And in fact, if we didn't generalise the world, this case into binaries, and spent the time thinking about the complexity, we'd end up with a more a more nimble system to start with.
2: Hmm. So true.
0: So... Mon, you said that people wanted to hear stories of hope. So we're going to finish with a story of hope. And so the question I have for both of you, maybe starting with Mon, is what is something positive that people can do in order to make sure that they're working with this community and your community rather than for the community? Oh, I think um,
2: reach out and invite people to be part of the, the conversation and you know, and a, a, approach it with open arms and a, and a smile on your face. Like I think, just in, in inclusion is the way to go. And engaging with different communities, diverse people,
0: and and going to that
2: into that with an open mind, uh, without judgment.
0: So if I'm scared of doing that, so I've often had people say to me, "Well, it's a bit awkward for me to go up to a community when I don't really know those people, and they're not really my friends, and it feels very awkward." And in fact. You know, it's not a natural friendship, how do I do this? What would you say to that person? Um, I mean, I suppose it depends on the the
2: context, if it's right. about a particular project or whatever. But, I mean, you know, there are organisations out there who can guide you through this. And and if it is you know, in the workplace, there are organisations like Pride and Diversity who can, you know, do uh, diversity and inclusion training on the LGBTQIA plus front in your organisation or... um. You know, organisations like Mardi Gras obviously, you know, require volunteers and have different programs and I think there will be people there who will be up for a chat. I think it's just generally going to these, approaching people or organisations with, you know, genuine curiosity and and a a genuine desire to want to learn and to want to do better and I I think most people are open to that.
1: And Steph? Uh, Look, I, I, I think just learn, just become aware because um, it's actually a really good point you know how do you go up to a community that you don't know anything about because even you know even I struggle with that sometimes you know learning about different communities um, my job involves learning about all of the communities and working out how to integrate them better and and ha- have it build that sense of belonging and um, sometimes it is hard to go in and talk to an Indigenous community about how do I best integrate you into a technology company I mean I don't even know what the right question is on that just yet but but it is. I reached out to you, Venisha, and you you put me in touch with someone who's going to help me on that journey. And it's just a bit, it's about being curious and being open, like Mon said, and and being aware that um, there is so much information out there. I mean, you can just educate yourself. Don't be scared to put that first foot forward and and listen. Usually, we go on a journey together, and then the outcome is usually better. So, so true. Also, thank
0: you, both of you, Mon and Steph. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. I've learnt so much and I hope the people who are listening have as well. And um, onwards and upwards. Thanks, Manisha. Beautiful. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of With Not For. If inclusive design is something you'd like to learn more about or you'd like to work with us, connect with the Centre for Inclusive Design and myself on LinkedIn or head to our website, centreforinclusivedesign.org.au. For more about today's topic and guests, check the links in the show notes or the podcast page on our website. We look forward to bringing you another episode of With Not For very soon.